LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Joseph Tainter of Utah State University. Uh, Joseph is perhaps best known as the author of The Collapse of Complex Societies and amongst various other publications he also co-authored Drilling Down, The Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma uh, which came out in 2011. Our discussion today will focus on areas covered by both books, uh, specifically the energy that industrial society depends on for its survival and continued growth and what happens when the supply of this energy begins to decline on the road to running out. For more than a century, oil has been the engine of growth for a society that delivers an unprecedented standard of living to many. We now take for granted that economic growth is good, necessary and even inevitable, but also feel a sense of unease about the simultaneous growth of complexity in the processes and institutions that generate and manage that growth. As societies grow more complex through the bounty of cheap energy, they also confront problems that seem to increase in number and severity. In this era of fossil fuels, cheap energy and increasing complexity have been in a mutually reinforcing spiral. The more energy we have and the more problems our societies confront, the more we grow complex and require still more energy. Our demand for energy, our technological prowess, the resulting need for complex problem solving and the end of easy oil are all now conspiring to make the end of the industrial age a certainty. The music's still playing, ladies and gentlemen, but the party is over. Well, hello and welcome, Joseph Tainter, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, we're here today to discuss, um, in the first instance, your uh, book, which you co-authored, uh, Drilling Down, The Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma, and also somewhat overlapping with that, um, a much earlier work um, of your own, uh, The Collapse of Complex Societies. And the issues we're going to discuss uh, predominantly concern the energy uh, upon which modern industrial society depends and the major changes in the availability of that energy, which have already begun and which in future will have drastic repercussions for our way of life and basically the entire world as we know it. Now, in drilling down, the, the headline issue was the, the Deepwater Horizon disaster um, of April 2010. Um, but you contend that this is essentially a symptom of our energy dilemma and beyond the aftermath of that and all the usual platitudes trotted out in response at the time, uh, you're, you're contending that there are much deeper lessons to be learned here and much deeper questions posed about our energy future. Uh, indeed, that's true. And it is not simply an energy dilemma. It's a dilemma about the nature of our society and about our way of life. I began my career as an archaeologist and wrote the book in the 1980s, The Collapse of Complex Societies, which you mentioned. And I was, as I was writing that book, I realized that what I was learning was not just about ancient societies, but it had a great deal to do uh, with us and with our future. And so when I began the Gulf Oil book, the Drilling Down book, I realized that much of what I had learned studying ancient societies and particularly how ancient societies would grow complex and what it cost to be complex, that this had implications for understanding why we're looking for oil in places that I refer to as deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous, uh, and the costs of doing this and the consequences of doing this. And basically, um, as societies become more complex, they require energy. It takes energy to be a complex system. Uh, if you think of, for example, 
animal species, uh, insects, bacteria. Um, a, a deer or a whale obviously has a much higher metabolic requirement than an amoeba or a bacterium. To be more complex takes energy, and the same is true of human societies. It takes energy to be complex, to support the kind of society that we are, and it's not just an overall greater amount of energy, but it's more energy per capita. So that the only way we can support the complexity that we have in our society today is through highly concentrated fossil fuels, basically fuels that derive from past geological processes. So the book really focuses on not just energy, but also on energy and the evolution of complexity in our society and how they're intertwined. Yeah, now the, one of the sort of buzzwords in there, the key, the key issues is that of uh, peak oil, which many listeners are probably familiar with, and also um, energy return on energy invested, uh, basically net energy in any equation. And these are things that um, people sometimes, uh, laymen, don't take into account, but they're very, very important. In, in this area? They are indeed, and in discussions of future energy, uh, peak oil and energy return on investment, which, which those of us who work in this area refer to as EROI, as an acronym, uh, these are the fundamental issues. The important issue is not how much oil is still left in the ground. There's really an enormous amount of it left. The problem is that the remaining oil, as I say, or the remaining oil that we're not yet using, uh, as I say, is in places that are deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous. And it's very expensive to get at them. It takes energy to get energy so that to get at oil in these inaccessible uh, places that are very difficult, in which it, it's difficult to work, uh, it takes energy in itself. And so what we find in, for example, the United States is that um, in 1940, we could produce oil uh, at a net profit of about 100 to 1, which is to say that for every barrel of oil that we would spend searching for and producing oil, we'd get 100 barrels back. The ratio now is down to about 10 to 1, 12 to 1. Some people compute about 15 to 1. Uh, it's about 18 to 1 worldwide and about 25 to 1 in the Persian Gulf. So you can see the trend is that we're having to spend more and more energy in order to get the energy that we need on a daily basis. Uh, this trend is irreversible, and, and it's going to have enormous consequences in the future. Now, as far as peak oil is concerned, peak oil is the idea that, um, that at some point we will have reached the maximum production of petroleum uh, that we will reach the point where we simply can't produce any more and that production will thereafter le perhaps level off for a while and then start to decline. Uh, it, the problem with peak oil, the challenge with it, is that you can only see it in hindsight. You mm. can only see looking back that, yes, well, in that year we hit peak oil, we haven't been able to increase uh, oil production since year X. Some people think we've already hit peak oil. I'm not fully convinced of that, but it's important to notice that worldwide oil production has not increased since 2005. And so some people think that, in fact, we reached peak oil in 2005. It's going to take a few more years before we know that. Uh, there are, of course, very large discoveries being made, the deep sea discovery off the coast of Brazil, for example. And new technologies are being developed, uh, hydraulic fracturing called fracking to produce oil in, uh, from shale in uh, primarily now in South Dakota, for example, and also in other locations. So it's, it's, not clear, it's not clear to me whether we've hit peak oil, but certainly, certainly the other factor, declining EROI, that's affecting us directly. And, and you can see that in the fact that... Um, the, the Macondo well out in the Gulf of Mexico, the well that blew out, was situated under a full mile of seawater. Mm. And, and from there, then, they had to drill down through several thousand feet of rock. Uh, it, it's looking for oil in these kinds of places, in these kinds of unconventional places, that drives up <clears throat> not just the monetary cost, <coughs> excuse me, that drives up not just the monetary cost, but also the energy cost. 
Well, yeah, it's staggering. I mean, talking about monetary cost initially, uh, we're reading some of the stats in drilling down, um, not only the lengths as they're going to get oil, but the, the, the monetary cost, the Thunder Horse rig was something I'd not heard of. Um, but I mean, it was, it was a jaw-dropping amount of money uh, spent on that equipment. Yes, indeed. The, 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 the rig that, that drilled the Maconda, well, the Deepwater Horizon rig, I think the figure I've seen for it was something like a billion dollars to build it and $500,000 a day to run it. And, and it's not the most complex rig. It's not, nor is it the most expensive. It was actually several years old. Uh, the ones that are coming online now, um, Shell's Perdido rig, for example, are, are even more complex than, uh, the, than the Deepwater Horizon. Well, to put the oil consumption in perspective with regard to um, the Gulf of Mexico, um, correct me if I remembered this <clears throat> excuse me, wrongly from the book, but that once complete, the entire extraction of oil from the Gulf of Mexico will basically power the U.S. for one and a half years. That that may be approximately correct, um, and you see you see arguments along these lines in regard to, for example, increased drilling on the North Slope in Alaska. Um, that uh, that all the oil that's likely to be there will not make that much difference. Although it, it might make a difference in price in the short run, but overall it's a very small fraction of the amount of oil that we use every day. And yet we're forced to go after these more remote and inaccessible and and hard to get at sources that add only small increments to our overall supply. Now there's two sort of um, somewhat academic points that I just want to mention because I think they're very key um, to the discussion and they may be new to people who haven't uh, come across uh, your work or similar work. And the first is the um, the, the second law of thermodynamics, um, which I vaguely remembered from from high school physics, but uh, I wish you could put us in the picture as to, to what this is and why it matters. Well, the second law of thermodynamics is one of the fundamental laws of, of the universe. Basically, it says that um, that any conversion of one form of energy to another causes a net energy loss, so that you can never go back. You can you can never go back and recover the original energy that you started with. Generally, when you use energy, it's converted into heat. Now, anyone who drives an automobile sees this in their engine. Um, anyone who heats their house sees this, that, that when you use energy, it's converted into heat, which is a less useful form of energy. Um, so basically, the second law says that, that energy tends to be degraded over time, that as you use it, it gets converted into a less usable form. Mm. Well, quite, and that puts the, um, the entire situation in quick start perspective, I think. Um, the second point was uh, something slightly more general that will uh, become more relevant as the discussion goes on, and that's the idea, concept of the energy complexity spiral, which you basically alluded to earlier. Yes. Um, the energy complexity spiral specifies that as, as complexity increases, energy increases, and and Conversely, as energy increases, there is an opportunity for complexity to increase. Now, this goes to how and why complex societies ever evolved in the first place. Uh, it's often thought that um, complex societies, what we call civilization, emerged merely as a process of people inventing things. Uh, the problem with that is uh, that complexity always has a cost. And in past human history, the higher cost of complexity usually meant that people had to work harder. You know, today we have fossil fuels to do the work for us, but in the past, people had to work harder. So generally speaking, um, energy has usually been in short supply in human history. Uh, we, we've had to increase in complexity generally to solve problems and then find the energy, produce the energy to pay for it. There's only been a few occasions in human history when we've had surpluses of energy, and we're living through one of those now. Uh, right now we have energy that is, comparatively speaking, abundant and still inexpensive, and that allows complexity to grow. But it allows complexity to grow only for a time because the growing complexity requires still more energy. So this is why I refer to it as an energy complexity spiral. 
the two are interlinked. As one goes up, the other goes up. As one goes down, the other goes down. And so basically it's impossible to to conceive of a point, to know when that point would be, or to to stop the development at a certain point that seems, if not optimum, then at least in, in the best balance can be achieved. That that just can't be done. No, I would say it can't be done. Uh, you, you know, as you know, there are many people who think that the solution to our problems is to is is to live a simpler life, a life of less complexity and and, and less energy consumption. The problem with this is that complexity in in most human activities doesn't just grow whimsically or it doesn't just grow simply because we want to consume things. Complexity grows to solve problems. You can think of this uh, you know, very clearly in technology, for example. If you have a problem to solve, very often the solution is is increasing the complexity of the technology. But you can see it in other spheres of activity as well. Uh, there are a couple of examples I'd like to use our to illustrate this are first of all how we responded to the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Well, in, in the United States at least, we responded by creating new government bureaus, new government agencies, consolidating others, reorganizing others, and at the same time trying to gain more and more control over behavior that's considered to be threatening. Um, so the complexity, so that we increased in complexity, we developed a system that has more parts and more behavioral control, and that's the essence of complexity, is more parts and more behavioral control, and we developed this in response to the problem of terrorism. It, it's an excellent example of how complexity increases to solve problems. And of course, as we know, this has proven very expensive. Uh, we pay for it through our taxes, and, and, and we pay for it uh, in, in terms of things like time we spend standing in line every time we go to the airport. The second example I'd like to give is uh, how we've responded to the problems of pollution and fuel availability in, in transportation, and apparently we now think that the solution is to develop automobiles that have two engines, where previously one was uh, was plenty. Uh, an automobile with two engines is more complex than an automobile with one. Uh, it has it's it's differentiated in its structure, which is to say it has more different kinds of parts and it has software and electronic controls to make the two parts work together. So a, a, an automobile with two engines, a, a hybrid automobile as they're called, is clearly a more complex machine than what we've conventionally been used to. And, and again, it's an example of how we increase complexity, in this case in the technological realm, to solve problems. So in human history, we have tended to grow more complex precisely in this way, precisely by solving problems. And so a lot of uh, possibly, you know, policymakers are probably guilty of this, but looking at uh, the situation and saying, okay, we need to do something about our energy use are perhaps failing to take into account the issue of complexity because just because you say, oh, well, uh, you know, the city buses now, uh, you know, don't run on, you know, petroleum anymore. They run on something else, you know, uh, avgas or they run on ethanol or whatever it happens to be. Uh, or you know the system is now solar. It's wind power. That doesn't mean that it that overall that the energy use is going to be cut because it, these systems may be much more complex. And also, of course, we're, we're dealing with a network here, a human, you know, social and technical network, where energy uh, reduction in one area may result in increased energy use elsewhere. And, and and all of that, all of what you say is correct. That we're in a situation where. Voluntarily reducing our energy consumption overall as a society would be very difficult. Some individuals may be able to do it, and families may be able to do it. People can always choose to take public transportation rather than drive the, their personal car. But overall as a society, decreasing our energy consumption would be extremely difficult, particularly when you consider that there are, of course, going to be problems in the future that will require us to grow still more in complexity and to consume more energy. Yeah, it, it, put like this, it seems completely intractable. And I suppose what we'll, as we go forward discussing this, we'll look at you know some of where this might be leading. But um, on a technical point again, and then also it's a there's a human uh, element in this as well that with bigger and more complex systems, um, simple failures or what what on the face of it seem to be simple failures can have devastating um, effects 
uh, and as indeed was seen actually and with the uh, the Deepwater Horizon um, incident. Well, that, that's indeed the case, and and as the system grows more complex, it becomes harder and harder for humans to understand what's happening when there's an emergency. Um, just uh, yesterday, we witnessed this landing of this uh, this new exploration craft on Mars, and I am quite frankly still amazed that it worked. It was such a complex contraption. Um, but very often, complex machinery fails, and it fails in ways that are unpredictable. Uh, there was a book written about this a number of years ago called Normal Accidents, uh, in, in which the author argued that uh, that failure of, of complex systems is fairly normal and predictable, and and that when it happens, it's very often to pinpoint what caused it, and it's hard at the time to understand what's happening. For example, on the Deepwater Horizon, there are certain safety systems that required flipping something like 30 switches. Um, and and this, is, I mean, this is not something who pe that people are going to do when they're in fear of their lives, when they're in a panic. Uh, this is simply impossible. It's too complex for people to handle in, in an emergency. And, and you, can, you can see this in, in, in many activities. The, uh, the Air France plane that, um, that, that went down in the Atlantic uh, three or four years ago, I think it was, on a flight from Brazil to Paris, uh, now that we understand what actually happened, it's very clear that that there were complex things happening that the pilots had trouble understanding, that they had trouble coping with, and they were not, in fact, able to diagnose what the problem was, uh, and, and, it, and it was a failure of a simple part, um, something called a pitot tube, which resides on the outside of the plane and measures airspeed. Um, and, and when that failed, it set off a cascade of other failures that ultimately caused the plane to fall into the ocean, and the pilots were not able to understand where the, where the source of the problem was. Well, yeah, I mean, on a personal level, I'm sure we can all relate to having had some gadget or piece of machinery, a washing machine or a car, that's completely ceased to operate. And uh, when the repairman's come out, he's picked up some little thing the size of a nickel and said, oh, it's just this. <laughs> but, uh, Precisely, yes, yes. Not particularly complex pieces of machinery in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but from a, the point of view of, um, you know, sort of the mass populace, as it were, most people don't know. I mean, if, if those pilots couldn't f fully comprehend the workings of an airplane, then who would expect them to know every technical detail of the plane? Uh, you take that down to the general population. Most people don't know how anything works. They don't know how it gets made, how it operates, um, how to repair it. I mean, same if we're talking about some you know, apocalyptic dystopian future where our society unravels, we only have to think about the, the realms of sci-fi where you have future populations using devices from the 20th century, not for their intended use at all, but, you know, mainly because they don't know what they're for. Yeah, yes, indeed. And, and this, of course, is why we have specialists who do repairs. Um, it used to be, uh, it, it used to be that, uh, that uh, people would often spend their weekends working on their cars, for example, but it's becoming harder and harder to do now that cars are becoming um, basically self-mobile computers. Uh, it's harder to diagnose problems. It's harder to understand uh, the, electric, the electronic controls. You know, just, just look at this problem that Toyota had a couple of years ago with, um, with unintended acceleration. Just look at the problems that they had trying to diagnose what was causing that problem? And the poor drivers um, would step on their brakes and the car would not respond. The car would not slow down. The, the, there was no way for the operators, the ordinary everyday people, to understand why their car was uh, behaving in such a dangerous fashion. Well, quite. And it just demonstrates, I mean, that potentially life-threatening, but um, even a few hundred thousand faulty Toyotas wasn't going to uh, bring about the collapse of civilization. But what we're talking about is that there's a potential here um, for, you know, you think of nuclear power stations, for example, or, uh, well, yes. nuclear is one of the most dangerous full stop, isn't it? We think of all the nuclear weapons that are out there. Again, it's just sort of a rarefied number of people that understand anything to do with that. And, um, you know, the, the potential for problems is enormous. And, as you say, as things increase in complexity, so it's going to be harder for even dedicated individuals to master uh, the entirety of any one system. That, that's true. And complex systems are often what we call brittle, which means that basically that they break easily. 
um, an example of the danger that we face today, a couple of examples I can think of. One is the possibility of a solar flare of such magnitude that it that basically knocks out all of the electronics um, across part of the Earth. And, and, and if this were to happen, it, it would probably cause civilization to collapse because it would take decades to rebuild that infrastructure and there probably would not be the technological capacity to rebuild it in, in any sort of a quick period of time. In the book, uh, in the section, uh, The Energy That Runs the World, which incidentally when I first read it, I read it as the energy that ruins the world. <laughs> um, of course, we get into the the territory that um, we're seeing an increasing competition now for resources of all sorts, you know, oil specifically, um, but all sorts of natural resources, um, <clears throat> whether they be, you know, land, water, uh, from land and water comes food, uh, all sorts of things that are mined out of the ground that are quite abstruse and arcane to most people. Actually, they can be very important parts of manufacturing. For example, if we think of silver's role in electronics, we think of rare earth minerals, in all sorts of things, but again, areas that people don't know about, but behind the scenes, and sometimes when it comes to oil, certainly right in front of us, we're seeing competition now for resources that's actually increasingly turning into conflict. And this is not about to um, you know, recede anytime soon. As competition for resources hots up, we're going to see more conflict, and they can call it spreading democracy if they want, but you know, we can all see what it actually is. Yes, that's very true, and certainly we would not... Um, be as concerned about the Middle East um, as I've heard it put if it was the world capital of bananas. Um, you know, we're concerned about the Middle East, no matter what the politicians may say, we're concerned about the Middle East because of access to oil. And, and certainly um, oil plays a major role uh, in, in politics in many areas, uh, Venezuela, for example, um, and, and, and competition for oil could potentially result in increase in conflict in, in the years ahead. Uh, right now, it's, it's, there's concern, uh, for example, about um, whether the United States should be engaging in energy deals with China. Uh, a few years ago, one of China's oil companies tried to buy one of the smaller American companies, uh, Unical, and uh, the, the, US, the U.S. Congress reacted rather vehemently against it, even though Unical's oil reserves were actually, were actually quite small. Uh, but the Chinese company had made the highest bid for it. And, and there was simply fear of American oil reserves coming under the control of China. Uh, but now what's happening as the cost of exploration and production has increased, uh, American companies are actually engaging in joint ventures with China, and the reason is that that the capital costs of exploration have simply become so high they were having to look for outside funding. Uh, so, for example, China is collaborating with um, American companies in, in hydraulic fracturing for natural gas, uh, fracking, as I said, as it's called, and recently, just uh, within the last few days, there was an announcement that they're going to be collaborating with Canadian companies uh, in the production of oil from tar sands. So the, 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 at, there are actually two processes, processes at work, I would say. There is increasing competition for resources, for energy, but at the same time, uh, there's a need for increasing collaboration in searching for energy because uh, the costs of doing so are growing so high. Well, I suppose <clears throat> collaboration occurs when uh, the person sitting across the negotiating table from you, you know, has a gun as well, so to speak. And uh, the conflict occurs uh, when you've got an opportunity to perhaps uh, annex or seize something, uh, you know, at minimal cost yourself from, and, you know, typical example being, as we've talked about, you know, areas of the world that uh, aren't as well developed, aren't as well defended, uh, but they've got energy uh, reserves of one form or another. Uh, now, in the book, there's a rather telling chart, uh, a graph, which basically showing the uh, where America gets its energy, uh, and in terms of uh, how many days per year, and and you know the biggest one, for example, is coal providing uh, 200 days per year of energy, and it, it de declines from there on. We've got natural gas and other very significant nuclear, very significant hydroelectric, electric, somewhat less, but still significant. And then at the top of this chart. Um, there's almost another sub-chart, and the lines there are so small 
their share of the overall pie, so to speak, are so small, you've had to continue this on to the next page. And when you look at the zoomed in uh, picture of this graph, it shows that what you're looking at there is petroleum, surprisingly, uh, to me anyway, in there. Uh, then you've got wood and other biomass, um, significant within that little section, but nothing overall. And then you've got wind and geothermal, which, as I say, if you pan back across to the main chart, they're almost not there. Now, I mention, I mention all of this because of the great white hope for energy future, which is renewables, uh, despite evidence to the contrary going forward. And uh, that basically, you know, even with you, you mentioned an interesting stat in there about uh, solar power use or um, the amount of power it's generating doubling each year in the US. But put in the context of your graph, it's going to have to double for a long time to come for, before it makes any significant impact. And the same can be said for a lot of the renewable uh, sector. That That's true. Um, if we were to have to rely on renewables in the future, it, it would take decades simply constru to construct the infrastructure, uh, the, the wind generators and, and, and so forth. Um, solar panels and so forth. It, it, it would take an enormous capital investment in several decades to produce these. At the same time, uh, renewable energy sources have some fundamental problems that are going to constrain their utility. Uh, one is that they tend to have a lower energy density than petroleum. One, 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 one of the most marvelous things about fossil fuels is that they have very high energy density, which is to say you know, calories per kilogram, for example, um, whereas renewable energy sources really don't have a very high energy density. What this means is that to produce the same gross amount of energy from renewable resources as we do from fossil fuels, one would have to use very large areas of land. Uh, there's a wonderful book published a couple of years ago by David McKay. It's titled Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air, in which he goes through the calculations that one has to do. And, and it's it's a book that's focused primarily on England, although it also discusses the U.S. And one of the things that he demonstrates was that is that to produce all of England's energy needs from renewable sources would take all of the land area of England and Wales, uh, which is clearly impossible. Uh, so that a, a, a country such as England or probably many other countries simply cannot expect to produce uh, its energy in the future entirely from renewables. And, and, and even in places that might be able to, it's going to take the conversion of large areas of land, and, and that will be resisted. That will produce political conflict. Well, um, although here in the UK uh, the government um, cancelled their subsidy for um, the fitting of solar panels. Over the last few years, uh, there's been a great increase. It's still a tiny minority, of course, but there's been a great increase in the number of homes that you see with solar, uh, solar panels fitted to the roof. And sometimes they'll have an array in the garden if, if the garden's big enough. And we can look at some statistical information and some first-hand accounts where individuals and families can say, we benefited from this in our overall energy situation. You know, we're spending less on energy. Uh, it might take them a while to recover the cost of the installation, but it's an individual, very small scale sort of success story. So, but in order to replicate that across the whole country, like for example, you say, okay, we're going to fit every single home in the UK, however many it is, 20, 30 million. Uh, then you start to get into with this sort of scale, you start to hit some of the problems that you would if you were then, you know, what you're saying, which is, you know, the construction of, of large scale facilities to power an entire town, that trying to do it even if you can make one home um, energy efficient and energy independent, that you try doing that on a big scale, you just hit the same problems as you would building a you know a huge solar array on the Isle of Wight or something. Oh, certainly it's worthwhile for people to put solar collectors on their home. They they may save a few pounds a month, and and over the course of several years, perhaps those things will even pay for themselves. Although in many cases they may not. But scaling up to something like the energy that you would need to uh, you know, to maintain the industrial way of life uh, is simply not realistic. Um, there is a new solar plant in the state of Nevada, which is a very sunny state. It's called Solar One. It covers about, let's see, I'm looking in the book here, 1.6 square kilometers of land and provides 15 megawatts of electricity on average. 
and you really have to go up in the air just to understand how large it is. 1.6 square kilometers of land covered by solar panels is a lot of land. Uh, but my colleague Tad Patsek says that if we were to produce um, enough electricity for current U.S. consumption from such plants, we'd have to build 211,000 of them, more than 200,000 of them. And, and this is clearly an enormous task. Uh, I, 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 don't see, I don't see that it's possible to build 200,000 of these things. Um, it's not clear where all the land would come from, let alone the raw materials. So it's, it's not you know, renewable energy sources in the future. They may provide some supplemental energy, um, and they may provide some assistance to individual households, but it's not clear that we're going to be able to run industrial societies on them. Well, and that's the, the crux of the issue, really. And, of course, when you talk about uh, you know, a phrase like we will not be able to run an industrial society, all sorts of things kick in there. Uh, first of all, it's emotional. Uh, people just blocking out the idea that things might not continue to uh, expand and improve, even though they're already contracting and deteriorating, as far as I can see, and I'm sure you can as well. But people are emotionally invested in in our industrial lifestyle, and even the people in the second and third world are somewhat invested in attaining some of the things that we've enjoyed, um, you know, for the best part of a century. And then we get ideology comes into it as well, makes the situation intractable. Um, in some cases, and politics comes into play as well. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any significant uh, social or political will for change, especially if somebody comes out and some of the more um, uh, strident commentators are saying, look, this is going to mean uh, 100, 200 years, this is going to mean subsistence living for us and two, two-thirds of the population gone. I mean, how do you even begin to for them, for most people to get their heads around what might be facing us, it's a very, very difficult for them to do. It is difficult to do, and what I tell my students is that people will not forego consumption that they can afford today on the basis of abstractions about the future. Uh, humans did not evolve to be broad-scale thinkers. In, in our evolution as a species, we evolved to think locally and fairly short-term. So thinking of, for example, how people are going to live a century from now does not come normally to most people. It, it, there are only a few people who think in such terms. And, and, and for everyone else, if they even think about the future, it's simply too abstract and distant. So there's, there's, no, there's no compelling way to get people, even if they're aware of the problems, to get people to conserve um, or to forego consumption. Uh, it, it's simply not going to happen. I, I have many disagreements with conventional economists, but on one point I do, I do agree with them, and that's that what gets people's attention is the price mechanism. As things become more and more expensive, people change their behavior, and, and unfortunately that causes, that causes pain, it causes distress. But that may be the only thing that ultimately causes uh, change in the way we live. Yeah, well, we, we do rather have a, a long track record of changing when we have change forced upon us. I mean, I think as individuals, we're all guilty of that sometimes, and certainly as a society. Um, there's great um, faith, uh, almost a quasi-religious faith, in technology and innovation, which comes into play here as well. Uh, as I said earlier, most of us don't understand this any of this technology or how the process of innovation and invention works. But um, and biotech and specifically nanotech are two kind of hot button things that we hear a great deal about uh, and the promise that they might have for the future, uh, sometimes specified, sometimes not specified. But as you point out in the book, we're actually undergoing a decline in innovation. And no matter what you know things come along in the biotech or nanotech front, this decline in innovation is going to have a, a great impact on the situation as well. That's very true, and, and I think it's one of the most important um, bits of research that I've done in the last few years. Conventional thinkers argue that we don't need to worry about resources as long as we're able to innovate, that all we need is free markets and the price mechanism, and as resources become scarce, uh, there will be incentives to people to find either more efficient ways to use them or to discover new resources that we can use. The problem with this is that 
innovation, scientific research, research and development are also complex systems. They grow complex and costly as uh, basically as we use up the stock of easy things to discover. Uh, as, as I like to put it, electricity is no longer out there waiting for us to discover it. Instead, now we work on microelectronics. Uh, what I found working with a couple of colleagues, uh, Deborah Strumsky at the University of North Carolina and Jose Lobo uh, at Arizona State University, looking at a very large database of patent statistics, what we find is that is that patenting per inventor, productivity per inventor is actually declining and has been since at least the early 1970s. Uh, in fact, between 1974 and 2005, uh, the productivity of our system of innovation actually declined by 22%. So that, that's in the course of a generation, approximately the length of a scientist's career, 30, 31 years. Now you take that and you project it very far into the future, one generation, maybe two generations at most, and it's clear that our system of innovation is going to come to an end. We will reach the point where it simply becomes too expensive to innovate. And, and there's no reason to think that, that this is going to change, that, uh, that the situation will reverse itself. Uh, you know, one, once you have used up the things that are inexpensive to invent, once you've incorporated them into your way of life, then what remains are simply more and more expensive things to invent. So what you see looking at the history of science is that in the 19th century, for example, um, innovation and discoveries were made by what are sometimes called lone wolf naturalists. Um, people like Gregor Mendel, Marie Curie, Charles Darwin. Uh, today, in contrast to innovate, it takes large interdisciplinary teams, uh, large institutions, and a lot of money so that it costs more and more to innovate. Uh, now, the quantity of innovations is not actually declining. Uh, it keeps going up. When you go into an electronics store, every few weeks there are new products on offer. The reason for this is that we're simply investing so much in research and development. Uh, the scale of the enterprise has grown so that it consumes more and more um, of the economic pie. Uh, this, the share of the, the part of the economic pie that we allocate to research and development simply keeps growing, but this can't continue forever. Uh, there comes as, as we allocate more and more resources to research and development, of course, we have less to spend on, on roads, on consumption, on schools, and so forth and so on. Um, so we're facing a situation where it's simply becoming more and more expensive to innovate, and the productivity of innovation is declining. And this, this leads me to conclude that we cannot rely on innovation for very much longer to offset declining natural resources. Yes, and there's also, um, it reminds me, a, a joke that a comedian once made about something about a combined toaster and coat hanger, the idea being that it was utterly useless, but it could be done, so it was done. And a lot of the little innovations we see in our gadget stores and what have you are not delivering great social or even much personal benefit. It's more for distraction, amusement, it's a refinement of something that's already there. And crucially, as you say, all of this using up yet more energy perhaps at a time when we should be thinking about, you know, do we want to burn out the last of the oil on this planet, um, you know, making ever glossier iPhones? Well, but it, this presents a dilemma for, for many areas, for our way of life, for, for levels of employment, for, for our politics. Uh, if, we, if we were to consume fewer electronic widgets, what would this do for employment levels in industrialized countries? And if unemployment goes up because people stop consuming electronic widgets, uh, I think our politics would be even become even even more toxic than they are now. Mm. So th th there's there's no simple answer. There's no simple solution to these problems. No, it's just because when when you look at the situation starkly, you know, as you have done, um, you know, it takes a strong strong stomach really to to move forward and say, okay, well, what does this mean? Where would this go? What then? And as you say, even when you do that, it still ends up in a big question mark because it involves human beings after all. So there's always going to be a lot of unknowns. Yes, and and we all know from industries that demand protection that 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 human beings will act to preserve their jobs in the short term, even if it means um, something detrimental to society in the long term. Uh, again, the, people don't think long term. 
and yet the earth is finite you know again another yes. uh, point that you make in the book and there's only so much uh, chicanery only you know so, so much sophisticated economics that you can apply to a situation before it's revealed as such i mean do we have examples just off the top of my head do we have examples of in the past where there has been a significant resource that has been exploited to death it's just gone and how society has dealt with that this is a difficult question to answer because although i don't believe that technological optimists are going to be correct indefinitely up to this point in our history as a species they have much to 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 support their point of view mm. that humans have been very innovative um in finding new resources as as old ones are um, are, are essentially used up or are exploited fully or degraded uh, although there are many cases um, for example in you know, in North Africa and the Middle East where uh, agricultural lands were degraded uh, in antiquity um, causing large areas of land to be abandoned and and even uh, in a couple of cases in what's now Iraq uh, ancient societies uh, were were led to the point of collapse by uh, overexploiting their agricultural lands. So certainly there are examples, but there are also examples where humans innovated. Um, in in, uh, in 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 England, for example, by the 17th century there were severe shortages of wood, but it was just at about this time that coal started coming into the economy in a major way and really prevented an economic downturn that that would have resulted from shortages of wood. Um, my my concern is that this leads us to believe that um, that, that we'll always be able that we'll always be able to innovate. Uh, this is what the technological optimists believe that that we will always innovate our way out of resource shortages. What I see though is that the productivity of innovation is declining and it's becoming more and more expensive to innovate. And so there's there's reason to think that we're not going to be able to continue this indefinitely into the future. Now, just dipping back into history there uh, reminds me that um, in Drilling Down, you get into some of the areas that you covered uh, back in the days of the collapse of complex societies. And you, you give a couple of examples, um, the Roman Empire, uh, which we can learn quite a lot from, and also the Byzantine Empire, which you contrast with as an example of a, a society that was able to simplify in order to survive, but that in itself is very rare. That, that is rare, and the Byzantine, the Byzantine case is an, is an interesting example and a very important one. Uh, the Byzantine Empire, of course, was the continuation of the Roman Empire in the Eastern Mediterranean. When, when the Roman Empire collapsed, it was the empire in the West that collapsed, but the empire continued in the East. The great crisis that they faced came in the 7th century when they lost about half their land to the Arabs, and losing half their land, they also lost half their revenue, and suddenly had great difficulty supporting their professional army to keep from losing the rest of it. Uh, and their solution was to simpl systematically simplify. Uh, they reduced the cost of government, they simplified the government. For a time, they did away with their professional army and settled soldiers on the land as a peasant militia. And you find that for a, a period of something like 200 years, from maybe 650 to 850 AD or so, um, coins almost completely disappear from archaeological sites because the monetary economy disappeared. And, and the monetary economy disappeared because the government was no longer paying a professional army. And it's one of the only examples uh, in history, in fact, it's the only example I can think of, where a large complex society systematically simplified and was able thereby to survive. And the Byzantines did survive. They not, they not only survived, they recovered and actually reconquered some of the lands that they had lost. So it's a hopeful example in some ways. It shows that a society can simplify and reduce its consumption and survive, uh, but the but it's, it's also not a hopeful example in the sense that they didn't do it voluntarily. The Byzantines were forced into it. They did it because their backs were to the wall. So it's useful because it shows that it can be done, but it also shows that people don't do this voluntarily. Yes, which, of course, we, we mentioned earlier. Now, the overall reluctance to um, address 
you know, th these issues and inability to change direction voluntarily, as you say. This kind of explains what we see in in the mainstream media coverage of this, which is uh, from politicians and other activists saying we must do this, we must reduce this, we must cut that, we must institute this, even as energy use overall continues to increase. Uh, you know, a good example would be uh, the you know the the CO2 issue, global warming. We must cut it. It continues to go up. You know, and back and forth this goes. Now, there's implications in all of this for the green movement and environmental action groups and the much touted sustainable development because these are somewhat kind of red herrings really I think as you see it in, in the book yes but I don't want to suggest that we shouldn't try hmm. uh, I, I, I do think we need to pursue renewable energy even though it will not solve all problems I, I'd like to tell my students that, that we're a species that muddles through uh, and, and that's all we've ever done is just is just muddle through. We've never been able to adapt to long-term conditions. We we adapt uh, a, a day at a time to the conditions of the moment. And and I teach sustainability here at uh, Utah State University. And and what I teach my students is that sustainability is a, is a series of short-term adaptations. You develop solutions to problems, and those solutions work for a while. But probably those solutions create other problems to which you have to adapt. So I, I think we need to we we do need to pursue renewable energy. Uh, we also need to continue to use fossil fuels if we if we don't want to have a, a drastic collapse. I, I know there are many problems with fossil fuels. I'm aware of the problems, but I don't think we can simply dramatically stop using them in in any in any rapid fashion. Um, and 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 we have to continue to invest in innovation. Innovation isn't going to go away. Uh, it's simply going to become more and more expensive. But we have to take these small steps to the future and then see how the future unfolds. I'm very reluctant to predict the future. I can see the problems that are emerging for the future, but I don't want to predict that uh, that we're necessarily going to have a collapse or that we'll fail to find some way uh, to muddle through. Uh, we have to simply take it a day at a time. Now, there's a very interesting point that you make with regard to, and this is relevant to the idea of uh, being greener and um, conserving energy, and renewables, and that's this idea of um, <clears throat> this thing called Jevons paradox. And uh, you mentioned a little point in that context with regard to uh, hybrid vehicles versus SUVs, and you make the point that actually, in some circumstances, uh, people are better off to have SUVs because the net energy use is less. Perhaps you could explain that one. Yes, uh, Jevons was a 19th century British economist. Um, he, he's known for a number of things. Uh, he's known among energy specialists for what's known as the Jevons paradox. He was concerned that England was going to lose its dominance of the day due to exhaustion of coal mines. And he pointed out that increasing technological efficiency in the use of coal would not solve that problem. It would actually cause people to use more coal than ever before. And he was correct. What happens with technological efficiency is that as you reduce the cost of using a resource, people simply respond by using more of it. You can see this, I think this is in one of the charts in the book, in how American drivers responded to uh, the fuel price increases uh, of the 1970s. Uh, because of those fuel price increases, Americans began to to buy more and more small cars, more fuel-efficient cars in the 1980s, and instead of pocketing the money that they saved, they simply drove more miles. So that as people got more fuel-efficient cars, instead of conserving fuel, they simply drove more. And this is an example of the Jevons paradox, that as you improve the efficiency with using a resource, uh, the price of the resource declines and people simply adapt by using more and more of it. And this rather undercuts the argument that 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 all we need to do for the future is to conserve or to improve technical efficiency and that if we all simply used less that there that we would have fewer problems um, if if the price of resource consumption comes down people will simply use more of the resource and so the only solution is is that is that technical efficiency has to be decoupled uh, from cost savings that 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 improving technical efficiency is certainly worthwhile, 
But if people save money from it, they'll simply consume more of the resource. So a way has to be found to keep um, to keep monetary savings decoupled from improving technical efficiency. Yes, and difficult to see how we do that within our um, <clears throat> sort of the economic paradigm that, that dominates most of the planet, which, you know, fair enough, some would say, uh, orientated around competition and uh, profit incentive and what have you. But in that situation, no one's going to say, oh, we're, we've made our most efficient and most expensive vehicle yet. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> right. Um, and, and the political problems are even more severe because you, you could achieve you could decouple um, you could decouple cost savings from energy savings through, for example, taxation. If if you increase taxes on fuel use um, as efficiency increase, but at least in the United States, people wouldn't accept that. Uh, in in Europe, decades ago, the uh, European governments were smart enough to impose very high taxes on petrol consumption, um, but in the United States, that that simply will not fly. Well, I mean, that's just one little area where as part of what's going on in general uh, on the planet as people, um, particularly people who've been used to, you know, like ourselves, have been used to, uh, globally speaking, at a high standard of living, as, as people get squeezed on more and more fronts, and of course they've become more resistant to giving up uh, any aspects of their lifestyle. But that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like, you know, we will only change in, in the, you know, with gritted teeth when we have no other choice. And, and, and I'm afraid that's correct, that what will cause people to change is, is simply high prices. That as if, if we have hit peak oil, then the price of oil, the, the price of petrol at the pump is simply going to continue to go up and up. And then you'll see people changing. People will adapt to that. Well, as you point out towards the end of the book, and I suppose it's as we're just kind of coming full circle on this, um, the future, if things carry on as they are, is that we're likely to see increasing incidence of energy shocks, uh, whether that be on availability or price or both. And each time, I suppose, there's a, a new normal gets established. And in that regard, changes to our lifestyles uh, may be something of a step down process and that perhaps in future, in a couple of generations time, um, you know, people will look back at this period and think it was an incredible boom, despite the, you know, hardship and uh, problems. And that all of this will affect lifestyle, you know, healthcare, work, education, infrastructure, retirement, investments, and the fact that we're already, some of us getting used to having less than our parents had, which was never the way it was meant to be. Maybe our children and our grandchildren are going to have proportionately less, but that to them will be the new normal. I, I, I suspect that may be correct. We all hope it's not going to be the case, but I suspect it may be the case. That And, and it concerns me in part because one has to ask where are we going to find the energy and the wealth to solve the problems of the future those those problems that you just listed which were what i what i wrote in the book as the seven converging problems such things as replacing infrastructure uh funding retirements and so forth increasing costs of medical care and so forth all of these problems are converging over the next course of the next generation or so they're all going to be costly to solve particularly costly to solve simultaneously and uh, we would need energy and wealth to solve them. So I think we will face a situation in the future where we simply cannot solve problems uh, by growing in complexity and increasing energy consumption as we've been accustomed to do for the past century. Well, I suppose in closing, and you know, I'm aware of these issues, um, not in the same detail as you, but I've been you know looking at this, you know, layman's perspective for 20 years and. You know, there is a lot of uh, to be concerned about out there, a lot of potential worry and, and problems seem to be on the increase. But I do see at a, a human level, um, despite the culture of denial, that there is um, a desire to change things. That they're built perhaps from a vague awareness that things are not going well and they're going to increase increasingly not do well. And you mentioned in the book the slow movement, for example, and people becoming more aware of time, the issue of time poverty, for example. And everywhere you look in the media these days, uh, people are talking about, you know, getting back to what's really important in life. And I don't know what you think about this issue, but perhaps in all of that somewhere, there's something for us to focus on as, as a positive uh, that we can take out, perhaps, as things start to, to change. 
I think you're correct that, that that we should work on envisioning a different way of life, uh, but it would be a way of life that would probably require that we have a smaller human population on the earth uh, and that we forego many of the things that we take for granted today. But that doesn't mean it would be a bad life. Uh, it, it could be um, a life uh, perhaps in which people travel less, uh, a life with perhaps simpler technology, but it doesn't have to be a life like the Middle Ages. Uh, it doesn't have to be a life where life expectancy is short. Uh, you know, we, we do still have the capacity to produce uh, medications and so forth, uh, and, and we're, not, we're not going to lose our knowledge of how to maintain human health. So I, I think we can look forward to a future in, in which um, people perhaps live a simpler way uh, consume less energy, but still a very fulfilling way of life. But I don't see people adopting this voluntarily, at least not in industrialized countries. I think I think it will come about gradually over time as people are forced to change and then come to accept the change. Well, it's happening around us now, even as we speak, and uh, people will be thinking about some of these issues and projecting off into the future. But yesterday, it changed a little bit. It changed a bit today again, and tomorrow it will change yet again. It's, uh, I suppose when you're too close to things like this, sometimes you, you don't think you're living in the midst of enormous change, but we undoubtedly are. Um, <clears throat> in closing, uh, Joseph, would you like to say anything about uh, anything you might have of interest on the web where people can find your work if they're interested in your, your research and what you've written, where they should go? Well, if, if you simply search for me on the internet, you'll find that there's actually quite a bit. There are a number of sites that discuss me. I, I don't maintain a web page. I'm, I'm hopelessly 20th century, I'm afraid. Um, th th there is my earlier book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, uh, which dealt with why ancient societies collapsed and was really the foundation of the work on energy and sustainability that I've gone on to do. I am working now on a new edition of that. I, I hope to have it ready in perhaps 12 to 18 months or so. Um, but I suggest that people want to learn more about my work, and particularly about how people have discussed my work, uh, just, just go search on, on the internet. Joseph Tanter, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It was my pleasure. Well, that's it for another time. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Joseph's work and his books, do as he suggests. Get onto your favourite search engine and search. There's lots out there. Video interviews presentations, a bit of audio as well, and of course you can find the books anywhere that good books are sold. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. <laughs>